Hello and welcome to New Frontiers in Functional Medicine, where we are interviewing the best minds in functional medicine. And of course, today is no exception. I am really excited to be talking to Dr. Michael Chapman. He's an ND over at Genova. Let me give you a little bit of his background. And then I'll tell you why I'm so excited. Uh, he graduated from Bastyr in Seattle, and upon graduation, he was in private practice there before he headed out to North Carolina and joined uh, Genova Diagnostics. His areas of clinical focus are hormone regulation, gastrointestinal health, and autonomic balance. Uh, prior to medical school, Dr. Chapman earned his Bachelor of Science degree from Indiana University with a focus in neuropsychology. He later worked as a microbiologist performing ph pharmaceutical research on cancer cell lines. Uh, Dr. Chapman has a passion for learning and helping others come to a greater understanding of the vast and dynamic processes that exist and interact within the human body. Uh, welcome to New Frontiers, Dr. Chapman. Thank you. Thank you. Hello. How are it's you? It's just really great to have you here. And, you know, as you and I have been talking, you know, as we've kind of started to get to know each other here since you've been at Genova, you know, that's, you're in my alma mater. You know, that's where I did my postdoc yeah. or when we were Metametrics and I was yeah, with that, Dr. Richard Lord. And we're just talking about sort of the rich firmament of, you know, our, the, the, the amazing colleagues that you get to work with and the fact that you're always elevating each other and with, with learning. And, and then the other thing you get to do, Michael, is you're consulting with these clinicians around the globe and really some top clinicians where you're reviewing their laboratory data and helping them sort of puzzle yeah. out what it means and interventions and so forth. And yeah, it's um, it's a it's a nice gig. <laughs> I mean, I get to communicate and consult and learn so much on a regular basis. You know, the clinical consults. You know, a lot of times we think of we're having conversations with new docs about going over functional lab reports, but so much of it is also having amazing conversations with some of the you know the thought leaders in the space yeah. and you know you yeah. remember just banging through report after report yeah. after report and just hitting hitting all these wonderful talking points you know both yeah. with therapeutics i mean it's a it's an ongoing learning experience and you know well, that then, combined with oh sorry go ahead no well i was just going to say and you're looking at thousands of data points in a given day i mean you're just looking at so much that you yeah. actually do encounter the zebras and yeah. And, and you, you know, when you get to do the dr a drill down into the literature, not just in interpreting, but creating the educational materials and, you know, yeah, all yeah, absolutely, absolutely, <laughs> absolutely. It's, it's really fun. And, um, yeah. you know, we get to see so many different cases and case reports and different patterns in the, the test results. Yeah. You, you just really get to learn what yep. these biomarkers mean, what these tests mean, kind of inside and out. So, um, yes. yeah, it's, it's nice. I felt when I was at the lab, I would, I felt like I was, we were involved in actually cutting the edge, kind of shaping where medicine is heading, not just sitting at the cutting edge, but really participating in that process. And I think Genova, I think you guys are still kind of in that mix. So just talk to, just give me, just talk to me about where, where you were, where you're heading and yeah. you know, just, and, and then we're going to focus on stool testing too. So you can move into that as well. Yeah, I mean, you know, Genova has been around a long time, 33 years. Um, and, you know, for those of, of you who've been with Genova for a long time know that originally it was Great Smokies Diagnostic Lab, right, way back in the day. Mm -hmm. um, changed its name uh, around 2003 to Genova Diagnostics. But, you know, for, 
for that many years, we've really been specializing in stool testing and functional GI testing. Um, you know, it's really been our bread and butter and it's just been kind of pioneering the way ever, ever since then. And, um, you know, we've, we've added on things like genomic testing, nutritional testing, immune testing, hormone testing. Uh, so, you know, we have a wide range of things that we uh, provide to the functional medicine community. Um, and of course, we integrated with Metametrics in uh, 2012, you know, so we have kind of combined knowledge of, of those particular two, you know, wonderful brain sets. <laughs> so um, it's just been a rich history and, you know, a lot of GI testing under our belt. And we kind of are we continuing to use that, that knowledge and expertise to, to help try to pioneer the way forward still with GI and everywhere else. That's exciting. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I know I kind of envy you being in the little, the think tank of the lab. Um, okay. So talk to me about, and you know, again, Michael, as you and I were talking before I hit, hit record, as we move through talking about some of the, some of the updates to the GIFX test, I want you to just kind of weave in any clinical stuff yeah, um, that, sure. that hits you or any interesting case examples or whatever. And then I'll just, I'll, I'll ping you um, as well. So you've, you've recently added PCR on for parasites. Yes. Um, and then just, and, 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 and this is an in-house methodology that, that, that you, that you guys have created. So just, I mean, just talk to me about, you know, what you, how you're doing this, what you're yeah. doing, what's, what's interesting and unique about it. Well, you know, I think one of the things about PCR testing for parasites, um, we've kind of been evaluating it for a long time. And, you know, at the end of the day, we're always trying to say, answer the question of what's going to make the most sense and provide the best utility for the clinician, right? That's kind of what it's about. Give them something that they can rely on and is actionable. Um, and we've been doing uh, PCR testing for a long time for the commensal bacteria. So we're, we're familiar yeah. with the methodology. Um, but when it comes to parasites, it's, it gets a little tricky um, because for one, parasites in the GI tract are in much smaller quantity than your commensal bacteria. Um, so that poses a little bit of a, 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 tr a challenge. And also PCR can have its own limitations compared to ONP. And I think the biggest limitation is that, you know, when you're doing a microscopic ONP for parasites, you are, you have the capacity to see anything and everything. It's, it's kind of unlimited. Whereas with PCR, right, you're kind of limited by the number of probes. You can only detect what you have a probe for, right? Mm -hmm. So we knew that we didn't want to abandon the ONP method because it really, it, it can catch just about anything. But, you know, the, the PCR technology has certainly become a little bit more uh, interesting, flashy. It's the new tech in the industry. And we kind of wanted to go out and, and be prudent about what PCR probes we're going to be using. And we selected kind of some of the more common parasites for these uh, PCR, you know, for these parasites. And so I think one of the things that was interesting and the question we wanted to answer was, okay, well, if we're going to be the first lab test to offer both an ONP and a PCR for parasite evaluation, let's test this commonly held belief that PCR is more sensitive, right? Because you kind of hear that out mm -hmm. there that PCR is more sensitive. So bottom line, it's better. Yeah. And, you know, but no one's really done the side-by-side -side comparison studies from actual clinical cases. Huh. They've, they've really done more of kind of the, uh, 
the sensitivity with respect to in vitro comparison studies or maybe in particular patient populations, but you know, we're, we've got a different population base. We're testing people with functional bowel disorders and, and everything across the spectrum. So yeah. how does it relate? And that was one of the things that, you know, personally, I was really excited that we can, we can come out and actually demonstrate the positives, negatives of, of all the technologies, which is, you know, something that we're kind of in the process of, of putting out there as well. Is this, so you did an in-house data mining project comparing um, microscopy with PCR? And, yes. And, okay, so what, so, so can, what can you share with us? And, and yeah, how, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, and, and this is where it gets really interesting. We have some unpublished data around that, but I can you know, just tell you that when we started pulling the data and looking at it side by side, we first were struck by seeing over 90% correlation between the two uh, methods, wow. which made us feel really good, right? Because there's a little bit of this image out there of like microscopic OMPs, kind of like mm -hmm. the old school method, you know, maybe the landline method for parasite <laughs> testing. But landlines are good when it's a storm, right? That's right. No, wait, that's right. actually, that's not true. <laughs> Cell phones are better. So, no. But like to find that correlation, we were like, okay, that's awesome. And, you know, yeah, we know that our cool. method and the way that we're carrying it out is is working really, really well. Um, but even I think what's more interesting is that when there was a discrepancy between the two methods, yeah. and um, it, when, when we saw that in a patient who's positive, there was a discrepancy, we're actually catching more of the positives using microscopic LNP compared to PCR. So mm. for example, with blastocystis infection, yeah. um, we found that for when there was a discrepancy, a patient was positive for blastocystis, 27% of the time, it was picked up by ONP and missed by PCR, whereas 14% wow. of the time it was picked up by PCR and not ONP. So, you know, that was a little bit of a surprise also, um, because I think inherently maybe based on the whole PCR is more sensitive, therefore yeah. better, you know, it was yeah. sort of a surprise. Yeah, for sure. Um, so including both of them obviously is a good idea and you're going to get, you know, yeah. broad coverage. Well, let me ask you also, as far as this data mining project goes, were you considering um, ONP like two or three specimen or just one? Like how did you? Three specimen. You yeah. did three. Okay. Yeah. So three collection yeah. times increase the sensitivity. Yeah. Yeah. As and we are seeing, PCR. yep. And we are seeing an increased positivity rate with the addition overall. It's, it's minor, um, but it's, you know, it, as far as clinical significance goes, right. You want to be, you want to be finding all the positives it. that you can. Yeah. And, you know, I think the thing that that demonstrates to me too, is just that there is no, there's no perfect method, at least yet. Right. There's inherent limitations and inherent positives of, of different methodologies. And that's kind of what we're seeing in the data. Perfect. That makes that, that it just makes a lot of sense, and I I appreciate it. And I'm, you know, I'm glad that you are, you know, using both. And I know that you're you guys are good microscopists over there. Your reputation sort of yeah. It's definitely. I mean, the it's job. the area of yeah. It's the area of the lab that we always you know say is probably the most tenured, most experienced, and most heavily trained. Right, because it takes a really good microscopist to 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 feel confident in in and what they're looking at and identification. So, so that takes a lot of training. Will we see this, these findings? Are you gonna you know, uh, submit to any peer review? Or is, are we gonna get a white paper out of this or are we just gonna have to email you guys and find it? <laughs> no, we're, we're planning on doing all of the above. Um, okay. And actually we're was gonna get to it in a little bit too, but um, you know, we have already put out one uh, published paper, um, which 
maybe we can provide as part of this. Yes, and, please uh, do. That's yeah. on a little bit of a different data analysis project. Um, but uh, we're, we're in the process of uh, putting a lot out there, actually. Oh, fabulous. Okay, so yes, what we can do on the show notes page is... Um, we'll just we'll just collect your resources and we'll link them there. So if you want, you know, any publications, any appropriate white papers, you know, we were talking about some of the educational guides early, earlier, earlier, you know, any kind of any kind of information you want to share with the listeners uh, would be fabulous. And yeah, of course, we want to we 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 want to see a link to that paper that you've just mentioned, and then we'll talk about it when it's when it's appropriate. But awesome. I want to just move you over to discussing the sort of the perennial drama of um, evaluating for yeast. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, sure. We do. I mean, you're just, when you're in a functional medicine community, yeast is, you know, people are thinking about it. Docs are thinking about yeah. it. And, and yeah, so, yeah. Go ahead. It's always talk. a fun topic, right? It's kind of strangely <laughs> controversial in our area. Um, right. you know, it's, it's funny. It makes me, it reminds me, uh, I went to Bastyr university, as you mentioned, and I, uh -huh. I remember so clearly in one of our classes, I think one of the first times the concept of yeast overgrowth came up and it was, uh, Dr. Eric Yarnell was the, the teacher at the time who spoke at IFM and it's yep. just an incredible nap. He's path, brilliant. Marvelous. Yeah, he is. And I just remember him bringing the class to a screeching halt and saying, so what is yeast overgrowth? Like what specifically are you talking about? Are you talking about GI candidiasis? Are you talking about systemic candidiasis and the immune compromised? Because I've seen those conditions in the literature what are you referring to? And it is sort of, you could hear sort of a pin drop in the room. And I didn't ask his permission to share this story. So shout out to Dr. Yarnell. <laughs> but, um, you know, it's just, it's kind of always been a bit of this controversial topic. Yeah. Um, and the same applies with just GI yeast, right? And GI candidiasis. Um, one thing that I always say right up front is like, yeast live in the GI tract. Right. We know this. And there's there's lots of them that live there. There's plenty of research mm -hmm. on not just the microbiome, but the mycobiome. Yeah. And we know this with our testing as well. When clinicians order a KOH prep on their stool test, we find yeast in about 90 percent of the samples, which is that makes sense. You know, we're eating yeast in our diet there. Some of them are transient. And then there's the ones that are part of the, the mycobiome. So yep. to me, the question, next question becomes, well, which ones do we care about? which ones are the ones worth investigating thoroughly. And we start talking about the, the candidas or the candidas, mm -hmm. <laughs> depending on how you say it, but, yeah. and some of the other opportunistic yeasts. And, you know, one thing that is also controversial and I hear this a lot out there is that you hear you can't grow yeast in culture. And that's a, a pretty common thing that is out there. And, in all honesty, I, I believe this to be a completely wrong sentiment. Um, and I, I'm not sure where this came from, but if you think about it, you know, we have yeast that can sit in a jar on a shelf in a supermarket for years and it still works. Like yeasts are inherently very hardy organisms. And more often than not, the problem that we encounter about yeast and shipping samples around the country is not with yeast dying, but rather yeast going crazy. Like we do more to prevent right. yeast Overgrowth. overgrowing, right? Than we do trying to keep it alive. Like that's not yep. our concern, honestly. And yep. so, you know, if you're worried about GI yeast and yeast overgrowth, then culture will absolutely detect it. And so, you know, but that being said, PCR technology is out there and we've continually been evaluating with, you know, should we bring that on board as well? And we're still evaluating it. But I think one of the 
one of the things about that is, you know, we kind of feel like we have an understanding of what we're going to get because we see yeast on 90% of samples when they come in, we do a KOH prep. So if you have something as sensitive as PCR, you're probably going to see 90% positives on the PCR, at least you should. And, you know, if you're not, then I, I might be asking some questions about what's going on there. But if you're doing a PCR, then it's the same kind of question. Like, okay, now the, the research on yeast in the GI tract is shifting towards what's the balance, right? They're talking about microbiome relative abundance, just like they're talking about microbiome relative abundance. So if you're doing a PCR test and you know you're going to get all these positives, what's clinically relevant again, right? And you know, maybe you want to know there's candida albicans and mm -hmm. then you have to define what's normal. You have to set a reference range. So what is a normal amount of candida albicans or Saccharomyces cerevisiae, right? You have to establish a normal. And I don't think we're quite there yet because the research is talking more about balance between the yeast again, you know, so it's, it's something that we're continuing to evaluate, but with respect to answering the clinical question, I think a lot of the docs out there are going for, which is, is there a potential pathogen or an opportunistic yeast? We're going to, we get that with culture. So, you know, I think moving forward, it's going to be more a, a matter of if we're going to in, incorporate this additional level of sensitivity, then we're going to be doing a totally different type of analysis. So, you're seeing, so I just want to, I just want to summarize, you're seeing yeast on everyone. It's just uh, about 90% of samples 90%. when you do a yeah, KOH prep. Okay. Absolutely. And, and okay. that's the difference because KOH preps determine live and dead, right? As compared to a culture, which only determines what's living. So, and that's the same as PCR. PCR is not going to be able to distinguish something yes. that a, a yeast that you ate or, right. or a yeast right, that you've right, already, right, already right. took care of and came out. So, so that's the distinction when you're thinking about, okay, a culture tells you what's alive. What, what do I really need to concern myself with that's, that's growing and is viable and is, you know, actually doing, doing what yeast do in the GI tract. And you think that there's sufficient, it's sufficiently reflective, a culture of what is actually happening in the GI tract? You think like? Yeah, I mean, to be honest with you, I think it is probably more reflective because it's, it's not being contaminated with what you're eating, what you're encountering, and what's, what's not viable anymore, right? So the, you're, when you're thinking clinically about, do I need to treat this person for a potential pathogen that's a yeast, I'm concerned about what's alive and causing problems. I'm not concerned about the yeast that are no longer living. So I think it's actually probably more reflective in a lot of ways. Hmm. That's interesting. So for you as a clinician, yeah. you would actually still continue with culture at this point. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. Well, okay. Um, all right. Well, so let's talk a little bit about, um, pathogens, potential pathogens. I mean, and now we're back to bacteria. Um, mm -hmm. And, and it, actually, in, you know, just what you guys are doing there, what biomarkers you're interested in, and, and, and how you're different from the myriad laboratories um, offering stool tests, comprehensive yeah. stool tests, and they're using different methods. And so if you wanted to touch on that at all, you can as well. Yeah, sure. You know, I mean, similar kind of story, honestly, with uh, the bacterial potential pathogens, dysbiotic bacteria. Um, the, the nice thing about culture 
you know, it's, it's got essentially the multi TOF capability of, of identifying these, these bugs. And so you're unlimited in the, the number of different bacteria that you can evaluate for. And give me like, dis- just give me a super quick thumbnail on multi and then jump back in. So multi is a, a particular, so what, what you have to do with multi is it's, it's a step after culture, right? So you isolate the particular bacteria from the culture. So you always have to do a culture first if you're going to use multi And then multi essentially is, is a method that identifies the the specific bacteria because it has a essentially a library and, and it's, it's a pretty cool machine. It actually sort of blasts a laser at this bacteria and, and, and breaks it apart into its individual kind of protein structures. And then it uses that to identify it compared to a library. Um, and the library has, you know, tens of thousands of different potential bacteria that, that, or, or yeast that it would identify. And so that way we have the capability to identify that many bacteria, yeast, and, and other potential pathogens. So no matter what we are able to grow out in culture, we can identify it. And that, that means that, again, we're not limited by a particular set, right? We don't have like just one. We have the set of 13 different potential pathogens that, that we can identify. Where it's sort of unlimited. Like just recently, right. we had uh, Vibrio cholera um, that was, we were able to identify as Vibrio cholera, Nano one, I believe it was called, and we actually we sent it off to the the state department to sort of follow up and, and secondarily identify and confirm. Um, and you know those Jeez. levels of details that you can only uh, that you can only ascertain by having a live bug that you culture and identify. Right. And the well, other awesome thing the, is unless you have you know, the probe, but. that specific probe, right? So then yeah. you would have to have thousands and thousands of different probes which become somewhat you know really really challenging so and and the other thing is that not only did we identify that particular bug let that doc know we when you have a live bug then you can run a specific sensitivity on Mm -hmm. that organism that came from that sample right it's not even just bug specific it's person specific so you can say these antibiotics were sensitive these were resistant the same goes for the, you know, the botanical agents where these, these were sensitive, it was resistant to these. So now you've got direct treatment guidelines information that, that will assist in treating that specific organism. Right. Yeah, that is very handy to have those sensitivities, both, you know, pharma yeah. and as well as botanical. God, I'm yeah. curious about the cholera. How was the patient? <laughs> You, you know, know, I yeah, I didn't I didn't get to feel that particular case, um, so uh, I don't know. But I do know that that specific strain of cholera tends to be less symptomatic than the more mm-hmm. severe acute hospital-born. You know, those yeah. the, the vibrios that that tend to put people in the hospital. So this this might be one of those that you know the, the patient in the doc might not have known that this person even had it because it tends to be less severe in its presentation. So um, it's pretty cool that, I think it's pretty cool that we, we, I, we caught that one. That is interesting. Are you, just out of curiosity on that note, are you seeing any of those multi-drug re- resistant candida species? Have those been coming across culture for you? Like, um, um, yeah. Yeah, you know, we, we see that fairly commonly, honestly. It's... Um, and I honestly, before you mentioned it, I haven't even thought to look for that as a particular pattern, just because it's it's kind of common to see some of the, the candidates have some resistance here and there. So yeah, I mean, yes and no, I guess is, is kind of my answer to that question. I hadn't really 
been looking for that specifically just because it's it's not sort of novel to me, I guess. Mm. Well, there was, I mean, there's, there's just some relatively scary ones that have been making the rounds that aren't, yeah. that aren't responsive yeah. these days. When, let me just ask you this, if you've observed whether or not uh, uh, drug resistant, fungal, antifungal resistant yeasts might be still sensitive to some of the botanicals that you're testing for. Have you noticed a pattern there at all? Or have you looked for a pattern? I haven't noticed a pattern overall. I've, I've noticed that the, the botanicals work really well, you know, just as a general rule. And, you know, I think when you start to narrow down to specific constituents, you know, I love berberine, but it's still a specific constituent. And I guess the inner naturopath in me tends to say, you know, that the, the herb in its full spectrum has so many constituents, not just the one constituent. Um, and I think there's, there's some power to that. So, you know, I tend to see some of the things like the, the multi uh, herbal formulas work very, very well, even when there's resistance from a pharmaceutical perspective. Um, so I think some of these, especially some of the ones that are out now are super powerful. Huh. Okay. I appreciate that. Can you, can you, can you just give me some ideas like what you're, what you're recommending, what you're seeing as being really powerful? I mean, I'll say that, you know, a lot of the clinicians that I speak with are using a lot of the the biocidin. Mm -hmm. um, they're using a lot of candibactin, AR, BR, uh -huh. um, but there's a, there's a bunch out there. And, yeah. uh, you know, I, I think those are the, those are some of the ones that I hear the most about on the phone. And um, even with respect to treating bacterial overgrowth, um, you know, you hear those, those products a lot. Yeah, that's right. Yep. Yep. We use, yeah, we use combination here all the time as well. And I mean, we do use a solo berberine for certain applications, but um, I yeah. think when we're focused on gut stuff, it is, yeah, combination is, is where it's at. Um, all right. So anything that you want to talk about in relation to how you're comparing to other, other stool tests out there? Well, you know, I think one thing that's interesting is that we've been doing, and, and you're familiar with the, all the origins of this, you know, that the commensal bacterial analysis, um, and I, there's a lot of people out there that are doing a lot of different ways, a lot of cool, interesting, exciting ways to try to just figure out what's going on with this microbiome picture as a whole. Yeah. Um, and, you know, it's, it's funny because I think one of the questions that we get a lot is, I don't know what to do with the 24 commensal bacteria. Um, and that's that's one thing that we've been focused on for a long time is, is really trying to provide clinical utility to that. And so one of the things that we did on our end was kind of just go back to the data and mm -hmm. say, okay, is there a way that we can take these 24 different commensal bacteria and, and distinguish different disease groups? And we were able to create this commensal balance graphic, which yep. was a way that we, and it's right there on the front page of the report, but it's a way that we were able to say, okay, this, this particular algorithm was able to separate the individuals for the most part from the healthy cohort compared to multiple disease cohorts. So we looked at people with mood disorder. We looked at people with uh, metabolic syndrome. We looked at people with IBS, IBD, you know, uh, insulin resistance. And so that was actually able to separate all those different disease groups compared to healthy individuals. Um, and so that's, you know, that's one layer of trying to figure out what's going on with the commensal bacteria. Um, 
of course, we also offer total overall abundance, which is on there as well, which can give you some insight into just a general microbiome deficiency or microbiome overgrowth, or at least a, a, a predisposition or a, or a consideration of microbiome overgrowth, which might relate to you know SIBO signs and symptoms. Um, but now, you know, we're, we're even trying to go a step further and we're starting to pluck out individual patterns. Um, okay. and this is, I think where it gets really, really interesting and exciting because, um, we were able to start doing data analysis on the different commensal bacteria and how they relate to other biomarkers, say for instance, inflammatory mm -hmm. biomarkers. Yeah. Yeah. And All right. Well, so, tell me. Yeah. And so we were actually able to come up with a pattern of, of of depicting a microbiome, uh, I, I guess, grouping of bacteria that can, that is very, very closely associated with the inflammatory biomarkers. And we're calling it the inflammation associated dysbiosis score. We actually, this is the paper that uh, we've recently published and we can provide, uh, it's open access so we can provide a copy of that as well. But it's, um, it's really exciting because it's the first set of being able to say of these commensal bacteria. Now we can start to determine that these bugs are more associated with inflammation. And here is your particular score with respect to that. Wow. And um, so <clears throat> that's, and that may or may not be in the presence of actually true inflammation because, you know, when you think about it, we talk about the microbiome really kind of being a, maybe even the heart of all of this. And if you can detect that pattern earlier, right, mm -hmm. then you can prevent somebody from walking the path towards actual inflammation, calprotectin levels going up and EPX yeah. going up. So, you know, that's, that's just one particular pattern. And there's, a, there's many more actually well, that what, we're discovering too. What organisms are, are you looking at? Are you looking at all of them and just kind of grouping yes. them or, okay. Yes. Okay. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Okay. All right. And yeah. And you know, there's, there's other patterns that we're starting to chunk out. So it's almost like we're beginning to not only just talk about dysbiosis with a capital D, but it's yeah. like, well, what type? Yeah, that's right. And, oh, that's amazing. Yep. Yeah. Good, 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 yeah, good. So it's super exciting. Yeah, that is very exciting. Um, all right. Well, what are some of the, so when we're looking, we, let's just spend a second on this because you're absolutely right. Like the biggest question on the GIFX forever is working through the commensal page. And I appreciate yeah. all of your efforts and I'm thrilled that you just published that inflammation score. I look forward to reading that paper. Yeah. Um, so just what are the, some of the bellwethers? Like give me the, just give me a super high level of how, um, what clinicians want to eyeball. Yeah, that's a good question. So, you know, we know, right, there's the, <laughs> there's the superstars like the lactobacillus and the bifido mm -hmm. that appear in all the, the multivitamins, uh, or it's the, the probiotics. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, there's some of the other ones like Ackermantia, right? Ackermantia is starting to get more and more press, has a pretty good PR agent, and it's starting to become <laughs> more understood as having an integral part to the, the barrier function and the integrity of the mucosal layer. Um, and in most cases is associated with overall better clinical outcomes. So that's, that's another one that I tend to spend a little bit more time on when I'm looking at a report. Um, Methanobrevibacter, of course, is another, it's not really a bacteria, it's an archaea, but that's a, <laughs> yeah. a nerd detail. So that is a methane producing bacteria and methane we know slows transit time and has its own associations with 
whether you want to call it SIBO or not, it has its associations with general methane production in the GI tract, which is associated of course, with constipation and obviously because it slows transit time, but may also have other aspects such as impacting the overall immune function. And um, this is some new data that we're starting to uncover as well, the relationships between methane production and immune function, which is really, really compelling. Well, what so can you a, say about that? Don't just leave us hanging. Yeah. So the, well, one of the things is that what we're seeing is with higher methane production, you actually tend to have a little bit of a decrease in the biomarkers related to immune function. Um, and that can actually become perhaps a setup for uh, a res poor response to other opportunistic type infections. And are you talking specifically IgA? I mean, what are what do you what do you guys notice? Yeah, really? IgA, eosinophil oh. protein, excalprotectin. Huh. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and so that is another bit of, of really really cool, exciting information that's come out of our data. You know, and that's another cool thing is that when you go to the the published research they're using all different types of methodologies to evaluate yes. these bugs, right? So sometimes yep. you'll see, oh, well, bifidobacteria was associated with decreased IBD risk. But then in another study, you'll see it associated with increased IBD risk because, you know, there's a lot of variables. There's different cohorts they're using, different, you know, just demographics of the, of the research group. So when you're when you're getting a patient result that goes through our data analysis, you know that you're being compared to our data set. Right. It's yeah. not it's not different. So that's why we went to our data, because we know if the clinicians ordering our test, then they want to know how it stacks up against our you know, what right. we know about it. Absolutely. Yeah. It's really difficult right now to weed through what what's in the literature. And I know a lot of clinicians in functional medicine want to do that and then extrapolate those findings to um, to the, the stool test that they're using because yeah the reference ranges are different the methodology is different right. you know and and you know perhaps the species subspecies are all different and you're right so I'm I'm really thrilled that you're you know doing due diligence with data mining I honestly that's like a little bit of a soapbox thing I think if you're in a lab you really need to be data mining and publishing. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So I'm well, glad I mean, you're doing it. It's, it's almost like our due diligence to provide yeah. the information back to, you know, because yeah. we are on the cutting edge of, of, of medicine, right? And yeah. so it's, it's important to, to be able to take the information that we have and, and provide it in, you know, it, honestly, the most transparent fashion as we can. And that's, I think a, that's tantamount. And that's really, it's a core it's a, it's a core focus of Genova is transparency first, you know, and that's, I think one of the reasons why I just, I really have loved being here. You've, good. That's nice to hear. All right. Well, listen, I just want to pick your brain since I've got you on the phone. Just what yeah. are you seeing for acromancia? How, what's, what, what do you, in your experience, what have you observed to be the most effective at bumping it up? Cause it really is kind of, it's, 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 it's definitely a darling. Yeah. For um, sure commensal at these at this point and everybody's working on it and thinking about it yeah I, you know you always have to throw in the caveat of a, every individual is a little yep, bit different got it and clinical but with history that in mind <laughs> you know what it is. so i mean inulin is probably yeah. the thing that i would recommend first and foremost as far as bumping out back your mancha and you know that is as a therapeutic for sure but we also know that commensal bacteria have a really hard time when the terrain is all tore up you know when there's a lot of inflammation going on or immune response or permeability 
issues, you know, that's going to create an inhospitable environment. And acromantia, it lives and thrives in the mucus layer. And the first thing to go when you have these types of insults, right, is the mucus layer. And yeah. so you have to foster, you know, that, that, that barrier function and that healthy that healthy lining of the GI tract as well. So you've got to get your yeah. four hour protocols going, but inulin is, you know, I think it's pretty well established to be a, a prebiotic that helps stimulate the growth of accurate mancha. And that's, that's the one to go with. You know, one of the problems that, that we tend to encounter on the clinical consults is we, we get the call around, okay, what does this report mean for this particular patient? We get the history, but then we never hear the follow-up. <laughs> so, you know, sometimes that part of it's lacking as far as saying like, yes, I've, I've heard that this worked from clinicians a million times. I mean, we do, we do hear that that is the, the prebiotic of choice for acromantia, but um, mm -hmm. I can't pull out a specific time when I, I actually had that doc call back in and say, oh yeah, that worked. Okay. All right. Okay. Um, I, you know, there was a paper relatively recently, probably 2018, demonstrating an association with ac acromancy and butyrate. And so yeah. I said, you know, we order, we, we're looking at GI effects a lot here. And so I just eyeballed, you know, you know, my patient's results. And I did not anecdotally see an association. Is that something that you've looked at? You know, that part of it's hard too, because we tend to see butyrate. It's so, um, we tend to see that fluctuate in response yeah. to diet so readily. Yeah. Um, and it's another thing that, you know, we were talking a little bit before about this, but with respect to people and being on the ketogenic diet and right. this being such a common therapy for right. so many different pa patients for good reason, right? It's, I mean, it, yeah. it, it is very, very effective. And as far as metabolic syndrome and insulin resistance, like when you use that particular therapy in the right clinical condition, it's, it's really, really good. But the, the thing that is really lacking from that diet is the fiber intake um, just across the board. Right. Uh, complex well, carbohydrates. Map speak to a long-term map too, or some yeah. of these really hefty elimination diets, but yeah. Okay. Right. So go yeah. ahead. And so, yeah. And so, you know, that's just something that I always caution about with our, our patients that we are putting on this ketogenic diet is that mm -hmm. where's the butyrate going to come from? Because butyrate's made from the fermentation of starches. And so, you know, those might be the, the patients that I'm actually talking about supplementation with butyrate just in while they're going through this particular process to make sure that the as you know, the colonocytes use butyrate as a fuel source. Yes. So they, they absolutely need it. And if you're not getting it in the form of fiber, where are you getting it? You yeah. know, so that's just something I also always bring to the table when it comes to, and I think, you know, Datis Karazian mentioned this a couple months ago when he was on your podcast talking about mm -hmm. how often we see patients coming in who have had their diet so restricted. Yes. And it's actually, it's, it's creating a deficiency in the diversity of the microbiome. And I couldn't agree with that more. You know, I think it's, yes. we have to be very careful uh, when we're employing these therapies. Gosh, you know, if you guys are still collecting clinical data, it would be so interesting to look at that. <laughs> it would be yeah. really interesting still, to see. Yep. You know, just like a, because you, you're fasting the microbiome. Yeah. And, and honestly, we, I guess, you know, since Dr. Google is kind of oftentimes our patient's first encounter with a 
physician, you know, there, right. there, and there, there are all of these diets at everybody's fingertips. I would say more often now in my clinical practice, I see people coming in, you know, go, like gone are the days that you're removing just gluten and dairy or encountering somebody who's not, all, you know, not gluten-free. Everybody has, you know, they're on the autoimmune paleo or they've put themselves on the keto or they're doing an autoimmune paleo keto layering in low FODMAP, <laughs> right. you know, things right. that are just really draconian. And we, um, absolutely see it reflected in the in in the GI tract and 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 there's a challenge with expanding the diet. I know on that Datis podcast he said the first thing he prescribes, you know, going to the perimeter of the grocery store and just start eating. And I tried to pin him down on what what specifically and he just said everything. Right. Start right, eating yeah. vegetables. <laughs> <laughs> right. And you know it, it does you know sometimes feel almost maybe too commonplace that you know, when the patient comes in the first time and they have GI problems, just do an elimination diet. And while I think that is effective in a, in a lot of cases as far as identifying what might be causing immune response, we, we also need to be diligent as far as making sure that we're not, to your points and to Detisa's points, starving the microbiome in response yeah. to that and creating yeah. a challenge just overall in, in the patient's, you know, complexity and diversity of their diet. Um. Yeah, that's just really great. All right. That was a little so soapbox. We, Sorry. <laughs> yeah, a little so. I know, I know. Well, it's funny because I'm just thinking we could we could talk for a long time today, Michael, but we got, I want to stay on task here. So perennial question, since you're doing culture and you're doing PCR, is the mismatch of PCR lactobacillus and bifido and yeah. culture. So yeah. what's going on with that and how the heck do we make that clinically useful when we see that? Yeah, I mean, it's interesting um, because, you know, first and foremost, these are bacteria. And just like people, bacteria are all different. And for instance, lactobacillus, you know, I've talked to our, our microbiologist gurus here, and, and they're often saying, you know, lactobacillus is just, it's kind of a tricky bug. Um, it's a facultative anaerobe, meaning that some, some strains like oxygen and some don't. So mm -hmm. when you're doing a culture, you're going to be favoring more of the ones that, that are, you know, grow in oxygen rather than right. the anaerobic species. And because of that, you might find discrepancies because PCR is not beholden to oxygen. It's just testing right. DNA. So you might see some discrepancies because of that. Um, and that, that's, again, an, another power of having both of those methodologies, it, you know, in your tool belt. And Bifido tends to be tricky in the sense that it's actually an anaerobe um, that we grow in an oxygen deprived environment to, to be able to grow it. Um, and so we don't see nearly as many discrepancies, but you know, there's all sorts of strains. These samples are coming from different areas. They're you know, perhaps being prepped in different ways. So you know, it's not like we're always going to get uh, a completely what we expect, I guess, is the right way to say that because there we're talking about living organisms, and that's why the you know having the DNA on top of the culture is helpful. I, well, I guess I I mean I like the DNA. I mean yeah. I think I mean in this I I have to say in this case I'm not I I don't I don't know that culture is in as informative as the argument you've just made on on yeast, which I thought was fabulous and yeah. and i think you know probably you could make the same argument on the on the potential pathogen or the pathogenic bacteria yeah i mean i think personally i'm i don't think i know that personally as a clinician i'm leaning more on pcr for, for well and i think so. 
Yeah, and I think you should. Like, you know, before, and, and maybe not saying lean more heavily. Personally, I don't lean hev- more heavily on one versus the other. Um, and I think one of the things that's, that's interesting, you know, I mentioned with respect to the parasitology, but it's actually uniform about PCR is that you might ask the question of, oh, well, why were you picking up more on O&P compared to PCR? That doesn't make sense. Like how and why is that possible? Because you're growing it. But go ahead, what? No, yeah. So, with respect to the, just the blastocystis, the parasite infection, you know, when we were finding that discrepancy between the microscope and the PCR mm-hmm. technology, and we were seeing more under the microscope, what we went back to was we looked at some of the Luminex FDA summaries and found that PCR actually had this this issue that we were noticing internally as well, and it's referred to as inhibition in uh, in the actual publications. So. PCR has, especially when you're talking about stool testing, it has this propensity to go through inhibition. And what that means is that there's something in the sample that's preventing the reaction from taking place. So whether it's a a Mm -hmm. metabolite of bacteria, it actually interrupts the replication and Mm -hmm. gives you an an inhibition of the PCR uh, from, from working correctly. And it's actually, it's well known and happens in about 15% of samples. Um, and there's, there's some workarounds. So one workaround to not get that 15% inhibition is to dilute the sample, which we do. And that takes that inhibition okay. down a little bit. But that whenever you dilute it, you lose some of the sensitivity yep. as well. Right. right? That makes sense. And so sometimes, you know, you could try to overcompensate from that loss of sensitivity by, this is getting technical, but like ramping up the number of cycles that you're running. But then yeah. you run the opposite risk of increasing positives. Right. But it's well known and established that there is this 15% inhibition. And actually on our reports, we will denote when we see that. And we actually say, you know, there was PCR inhibition, cannot report the particular findings. So um, if you're not seeing that on a PCR test, then that then that's something that that you should be seeing, I guess I should say, and is another reason why when it comes to trying to make this decision, PCR versus culture, you know, again, they both have their, their limitations. Right. Well, that's a, it's pretty interesting. Okay. Thanks for yeah. that. Um, all right. What yeah, else you can I- see where it can, you know, it can definitely be a tricky balance. And, yeah. you know, at the end of the day, that's why we, yeah. Genova have been evaluating these different technologies for right. for such a long time. And when it comes to bacteria, I mean, we know that there's aerobic and same thing goes with aerobic bacteria that we tend to grow those out very, very well in culture. And the, the benefit there is we know exactly which particular botanical pharmaceutical agents to use. Yeah, no, I get bacteria. it. I get it. Yeah. I'll hand it to you, Dr. Chad. <laughs> yeah. You're making a good argument. I'm, I'm impressed. I mean, you are. You know, it's just like when I you know, Metametrics published the laboratory evaluations textbook, I think it came out in 2008. And my, I was working on just really doing a big drill down into how to evaluate minerals. You know, Mm -hmm. what are the specimen we want to use and so forth. And the conclusion I came to spending, you know, many, many, many months reading many, many articles was that we want, you know, the more specimen, the the more variety, ultimately the better to really get a sense of what's going on in your body. Yeah. And, um, I mean, and that's basically what you're saying, and it just makes it, it makes total sense. You know, if we right. can look at this from other angles, we're, we're, we're going to get a truer clinical picture. 
Yeah, it's a great analogy because, you know, we know that some minerals are more circulate more readily in the red blood cells. Some of them more circulate more freely in the plasma. And so, you know, there's yeah, and you can use things. urine for some. You could even yeah. arguably use hair for some. Um, right. Yeah, that's exactly right. And so just sort of having a kaleidoscope of ways to look at it. So anyway, good. Good job on the uh, on the on the argument there. I, it makes total sense to me. OK, yeah. so. um. Let me think what I want to just like, well, let me ask you now, I know you guys are, are working on other pretty exciting stuff. So I want to, I want to hear about that. And then we might just have a few more minutes to, um, you know, anything that you're thinking about, you want to add and, you know, perhaps I'll just ping you on a couple of questions. I feel like I could pick your brain a lot, <laughs> but so what, so what's going on? What's new in the lab? Well, I mean, so we talked a little bit about the PCR and we didn't mention that the blastocystis subtyping. We're also doing next-gen sequencing for blastocystis subtyping because that's becoming more and more uh, prevalent in the literature as far as yes. knowing that particular subtypes might be associated with a different clinical presentation Good. and perhaps even different treatment outcomes, you know, and so that we felt like was a, a nice little addition to the test that we could provide and yep. at least start culminating the knowledge on it. You know, we yep. know that it's probably not fully we know it's not fully fledged out in the literature yet but there again we have a lot of information and we have all the other chemistry markers to be able to to, to relate to those particular subtypes so yes. you know we're only going to be able to push the boundary further on that particular information and um, it's basically like for anybody who's not aware although i think most folks listening are some bla so blasto was once upon a time you know debated yeah as to whether yeah. it was clinically relevant but if you're sitting in practice and somebody's got blasto you would absolutely see re clinically relevant cases there was no doubt about it and so i'm glad that the literature is sort of ca catching up with clinical observation and i'm glad that you guys are you know kind of helping us in the decision making yeah and you know one of the the layers underneath that that we're starting to ask the questions around is you know is there a predisposing type of bacterial mm -hmm. pattern dysbiosis mm -hmm. that might put someone more at risk for acquiring that in the first place and might Makes be sense. why we see so much yeah who's uh, vulnerable who's vulnerable and who which ones are so difficult to treat clinically yes because, you know sometimes you you take the blaster you question. throw oregano and it's gone and then some people have it for years and you're like what is going yes. on here yes oh and uh, yeah i would say honestly as a rule in my experience clinically it's most it's pretty challenging so yeah. So I think so. Yeah. And uh, to that point, what are the interventions in your observation or that, 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 that might be good for Blasto? Well, I mean, this might be a little preemptive, but, you know, I think what we're learning is it, it kind of goes back to what we were talking about a little bit earlier. It's like, yes, you want to use the antimicrobials to, to go after that particular bug directly, but then what are you doing to address the rest of the microbiome and what are you doing to address barrier function and an immune response? Um, and that's where, you know, I maybe before wouldn't be thinking about your immunoglobulins to help stimulate some of the, the immune response, but that might be mm. something I'm, I'm thinking about moving forward. Um, mm -hmm. And then your prebiotic fibers to make sure that you're increasing the, the, the mucus layer and the acromantia and, and those particular elements. Right. You know, so, so I think that's, you know, that's some of the stuff that now we're talking about directly clinically actionable and something that's different than we would have thought about before. Good. Um, which is cool. Right. And, and yeah, it's really well, good. And he, 
there's another layer too where we're starting to be able to tie that to some of the chemistry markers like we're seeing variances in the short chain fatty acid production and the distribution there we're seeing variances in the actual fecal fats compared mm -hmm. you know so like the amount of cholesterol compared to long chain fatty acids and if you're not familiar on the on the test we not only do a, a sort of a total fecal fat analysis which just tells you are they breaking down absorbing fat but then we break it we actually separate it into triglycerides as compared to long chain fatty acids and phospholipids which are more about absorption of fat rather than digestion and there's a lot of nuances there that we you know we'll probably spend another half hour on but you know we're being able to tie these chemistry patterns to the actual microbiome which is another another layer, another thread that we're weaving this picture of where, you know, you so when are we going to have a little, when are we going to have a, a cheat sheet to be able to look at all of this sitting in front of us as we're working with our patients? Where is yeah. all of this knowledge? <laughs> it's where a good plug. It? So we're, we're actually, we're doing a, a webinar with Dr. Christine Stubbe next month on okay. sort of understanding a little bit of a, another layer into the commensal bacteria where we're going to weave in some of this. Uh, like I said, we have one publication out now with uh, several more yep. to follow. Okay, um, good. And then I think from a you know a clinical testing perspective, you can you can expect some some pretty cool changes in the future. So let's make sure we have a link to that webinar and yep. um, the recording. I'm assuming is available as well, right? If people aren't there at the live, it's yeah, obviously absolutely. available. Okay, yep. okay, cool. Um, listen, do we need to prep patients prior to collection to go low fat or alter their fat intake? I mean, what again? If somebody's on a keto diet, what are we going to see with their fecal fat? Yeah, we get that question a lot. And, you know, I'm always answering, well, what do you want to see? You yeah, know, and we get that question with respect right. to probiotics. Should I keep them on the probiotics or take them off? And, yeah. and I'm always like, well, what do you care about? You know, do you care about seeing whether that probiotic is staying viable? Then I would keep them on it. And then we're going to see it in the DNA if it's sustaining um, or vice versa. If you take them off, yeah. Right? And then wait two weeks is, has that made an effect? Um, and same thing goes with the diet. You know, it kind of depends. Are you planning on keeping them on keto for a long period of time? Then I would keep them on keto and there, you know, what's their butyrate percent, what's their short chain fatty acid per total so that I know I need to layer in some intervention to help support that even more. But when you see high fecal fat beyond the short chains, yeah. Or like, like short chains aside, because I know we're risking those being low. Yeah. But yeah. if you see high fecal fat, are we, we're just assuming that's because they've just had a few tablespoons of olive oil followed by an avocado and you know, it's possible. a coconut. Yeah, it's possible. I mean, that's where you, you really have to layer in the clinical history clinical and what you know about it. Because yeah. the reference range is definitely not set on a patient population that is doing that. Um, okay. That being said, you still have the, the knowledge that what they are doing is exceeding their ability to break it down and absorb yeah, it. Yeah, right. Um, that's right. Regardless. Yeah. Um, so, you know, whether that's expected or not, or whether you even care from a clinical perspective, you know, that's, that's a little bit of a, a decision that, that you can make. That you, we can make clinically. Okay. So yes, if they're having a high, if they're on a very high fat diet, you might see it in the stool specimen. However, uh, you want to determine as the doctor, whether or not you think that they're absorbing adequately. All right. I got one more question for you and then we're just yeah. going to head to home stretch and you're, you will, we just need to corral a lot of these things we touched upon for the show notes so people can have access to all the, all of it. But yeah. so what's up with zonulin family peptide? It's <laughs> a great question. Okay. So <laughs> zonulin, um, there's, 
there's essentially the zonulin that Dr. Fasano has been researching for a long period of time, right? Which is the, the molecule that he has been studying and has been linking to the, the permeability aspect. Um, and there's several kits that were made available that can test zonulin. And what happened was what was discovered the the main kit that's actually used in the literature most of the literature is actually not testing and using the exact molecule for zonulin it's using sort of a, a family relative of it which mm -hmm. is why we came out with the name zonulin this was suggested actually by the kit manufacturer zonulin family peptide okay. and the thing about the thing to know about it is it's actually the kit that was used in all the literature in studying zonulin except for Dr. Fasano's. So there's kind of, he's measuring this one particular molecule and it turns out, and this is not uncommon, honestly, in the scientific community where, you know, new discoveries are happening all the time and a, and a particular peptide gets misidentified or misnamed. Um, but that's kind of what happened. And when we, we learned about it, we said, you know, we know that this is not the zonulin that Dr. Fasano is studying. And so, but we know it's a relative. So we're going to go out and just inform everyone, hey, this is, you know, the kit that is used in the majority of the literature around what was previously known as zonulin is just, it's not the same molecule. Mm. And, and that's where we're at with it. Okay. All right. And has any comparison been done yet? And I haven't that in the no, future? I haven't seen any, I don't think there is any comparison because essentially from my understanding of it, and, you know, I, I certainly could be wrong on this, is that the only available way to detect zonulin is actually within Dr. Fasano's research. Um, mm. There's no other kits that I'm aware of that can actually detect that particular molecule that he's testing. And I don't believe he's done a comparison study that I've seen yet. Okay, so he, he would have to do it in his lab. Yeah, but All you right, know, the so bottom then, line is that the, those research studies that, are, that were done on zonulin still apply because it's actually where we're using the same kit. Um, yeah, the, the other, the non-Fasano studies. Correct. Yeah, Correct. got it, got it, got it. Okay, so you're seeing an elevate. I mean, what? How do you use this? Do you use this as a screening? Is this a definitive diagnosis? What do? You, how do you? How are you using this clinically? Clinically, um, you know, I think that most of the literature done on that is with respect to more GI inflammatory conditions and metabolic syndrome, actually, interestingly, which, you know, when you think about it, makes a lot of sense because we tend to think about metabolic syndrome having such a huge relationship to the gut and the inflammation as well. So um, I tend to think of that as when you see a positive, then it's, it's telling me that there's likely some sort of inflammation. And more often than not, when there's inflammation in the GI tract, we're talking permeability issues anyway. Um, the, one of the problems with it, I think, is that when you see a negative, uh, you can't necessarily use that as a rule out. It's, yeah. um, you still need to go forward. If you're interested in permeability, you need to do something like a lactose mannitol test, to, okay. which is the gold standard. So that's kind of how I use it. You know, it, it can help pinpoint the, the so inflammation. So it's a screen. And, it may, and if it's high, then we're thinking inflammation as well. If, especially, I would imagine, if you have corroborated chemistries. Absolutely. Okay. All right. All right. Well, listen, Dr. Chapman, it was great to talk to you. Yeah. We could keep going here. You're just a font <laughs> of information. But people can call and, and schedule with you at the lab, right? So if anybody right. kind of do a drill down on one of their tests, they can mine your brain and schedule with you. Okay. Yeah. Well, there's, you know, there's, there's lots of other naturopaths, physicians, chiropractors on this particular team, all amazing, amazing. Good. So, you know, you feel free to call anytime. That's what we're here for. Perfect. All right. Well, thanks for joining me today on uh, New Frontiers. Awesome. Thank you.